Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 123. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for um, being with us during difficult times. Thank you for carrying us along by your Holy Spirit, by your precious promises, by the truth of who Messiah is and what he has done for us. Uh, despite all of the... Um, stressful uh, events that are happening um, uh, near and abroad, uh, especially in America, for many of those who are listening to this uh, uh, podcast and following this YouTube video, Lord, uh, America is going through uh, such troubling times. Indeed, the entire world is suffering under a, a worldwide pandemic, but America has her own unique problems right now with politics and with um uh, government and and uh, racial tension and 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 whatnot. So, Lord, we just ask that you will continue to help us to understand who our loyalty lies with, who is our faith in, um, where should we be placing our hope and our trust? Um, should we be placing it in our political leaders, or should we be placing our trust in you and in your Son and in the Spirit that is in our lives? And in your words that you've left for us, help us to, as believers to continue to um, make uh, our priorities right, uh, uh, giving us uh, um, a hope beyond hope. Uh, there are so many reasons to despair, and yet there are so many more reasons to, to uh, have a joy that is uh, unexplainable, um, uh, a faith that is unshakable, uh, and it's because of, of, of the God that you are. So bless you, Father, for these opportunities to share with one another, to fellowship with one another, to encourage one another, uh, to strengthen one another uh, with just a word of hope here and there. Um, help us to continue to connect to one another, even though it's difficult sometimes because of the social distancing and the sheltering in place and, and all of that. But Lord, let us not uh, forget that um, we've got to be here for one another and strengthen one another as communities and as families. Continue to raise us up, give us a voice, um, give us, help us to be lights in places that are very, very dark, and we'll continue to give Yeshua the praise, for he is the one that is the true light that has come into the world. Bless his name, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher, 
at a congregation in Thornton, Colorado, known as The Harvest, Kehilatunova. You can find us online at www.graftedin.com. I've got the website pulled up right now. And um, we are meeting in person and online. So if you're ever in the, uh, the uh, Thornton area, it's just north of uh, Denver, then uh, join us at 1 p.m. every Saturday afternoon for our weekly Sabbath services. And if you can't make it, go to our website and uh, browse around, but take notice of the um, video sermons that we post to our YouTube channel. Uh, you can see right now that uh, I've got the, the website pulled up and uh, Pastor Mark is going through a series on Joseph. He's in part two and uh, it's a character profile series and I think you'll find it enjoyable. I've got my own... Um, the Tetsi Torah website uh, online as well at www.tetsetorah.com. And you can find me online at T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. From the homepage, like you see I've got pulled up right now, there's a cluster of links right at the very top of the page uh, from some of the main resources that I make available for anyone. Most of those resources are um, written audio and video so you can find them across many different um, uh, platforms and just avail yourself of all that's there it's there for free it's my blessing to make them available to you it's my joy it's my passion uh, to be a part of the growing messianic community worldwide using this particular uh, medium of resources these are the live internet studies and uh, this is episode number 123 and the the meeting date for this recording uh, for those of you who are in America is January 9th 2021 that's the USA date in case you're in another country like I am it's actually already January 10th on my side of the world and we meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time so set whatever clock you're using against that time zone and you'll be sure to be able to be with us. We meet for one hour, two 30-minute segments. The first 30-minute segment is given over to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fast and Food, Oh My. We're in part 41 tonight. And segment two is given over to Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 58. We'll watch a view... A, um, featured YouTube video tonight on Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and the video is entitled The Ten Commandments versus the Whole Law. We'll look at that a little later on into the study. I've also got a, uh, a YouTube channel that I'd like to, you, for you to um, take a look at. You can find me online at www.youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. Go to my YouTube channel, browse around, see what interests you, take a look at the uh, the videos tab, and um, look at all the uh, the videos that I upload. These are in the order that I have uploaded them. Um, I'm sorry, in the order from latest to the oldest, so the, the latest video is right there in the upper left-hand corner, and you can see from there that I'm quite busy. Uh, I upload six times a week. It's only one day a week that I'm not really uploading a video, and that's basically today when I'm recording everything, but every other day I'm uploading a video, so uh, I like to keep busy, and so I'd be delighted if you go to my YouTube channel, browse around, watch the videos, subscribe to make sure that um, you become part of my YouTube family. There these days you have to make sure you hit the little bell for notifications that'll keep you in the loop as far as when I upload new videos. Uh, thirdly, you want to make sure you like the videos because I'm absolutely positively sure that you're going to like the content that I'm uploading to YouTube, right? 
Um, no, seriously, uh, you can put thumbs down if you don't like the content. I mean, it's theological. What can I say? There's always going to be uh, people who agree and disagree. But lastly, um, leave a little comment or, well, share the video, first of all, um, with your friends and family members and people on your social media channels. But lastly, um, uh, leave a comment if you like what you're watching or tell me what you don't like about the videos. I'm fine with that either way. And then if you scroll to the very bottom um, of the home tab, I'm going to just plug some resources real quick. Uh, if you scroll to the very bottom of the uh, home tab, um, You'll see that I've got some resources, featured channels. I talked about these last week. I've got the Harvest link down there. That's my uh, home congregation website, Shema Ministries, a, a, a YouTube channel uh, by a, a pastor friend of mine who used to attend the Harvest. Likewise, uh, Pastor Norm Franz, Ascension Ministries, again, he's a, 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 a Harvest related there. Uh, Messiah Matters, uh, put together by Caleb Hegg. Uh, son of Tim Haig, who uh, is one of my favorite uh, Torah teachers. Beth El Gibor, my home away from home congregation. They've got their own YouTube channel that I recommend. And then uh, Mishpat Vachesed Ministries has actually put together a YouTube channel uh, by uh, a former member of this particular uh, Skype uh, uh, live internet studies um uh, Greg Wilson, and uh, he, that's his uh, YouTube channel. And then when I click on the uh, the little tab, uh, the little arrow, Messianic Apologetics shows up. So I got some more tabs here that I'm just letting you uh, making you aware of. Messianic Apologetics. I'm kind of plugging these a little bit. Uh, is put together by uh, J, uh, J uh, John McKee. Um, J.K. McKee, I believe, and uh, he's got a great uh, apologetic resource there. I mean, just loads of content. You just you can't exhaust going through his uh, resources there. Ask Dr. Brown is a YouTube channel by um, the well-known Messianic apologist, probably the world's foremost Messianic apologist, Dr. Michael Brown. Um, so Ask Dr. Brown is a great uh, YouTube channel there that I'm subscribed to. Alpha and Omega Ministries put together by um, Dr. James White. Again, great apologetics there. Um, not all of these are messianic resources, but they're definitely good um, uh, uh, biblical resources that you want to latch on to. Corner Fringe Ministry is also a great, I believe, messianic ministry. The next one is actually... Um, a resource out of here in Korea. It's a Messianic Korean, Messianic Jewish Korean uh, uh, congregation that's uh, in Seoul, in the city that I live in. I'd never attended the congregation, but they've got a YouTube channel. And so if you're in Korea or if you can speak Korean or understand Korean, well then uh, check out that particular resource. And then the last one is um, Inspiring Philosophy. Um, and I'm a, I'm a, a, a a, 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 not a philosophy major. I'm a I'm a psychology major, but I'm really interested in philosophical discussions, and so I'm subscribed to that particular channel as well. All right, and that'll um, that'll do it for some of the resources. Um, just real quick, if you're interested in studying with us during the live internet studies, um, make sure you have Skype installed on your computer or access to it somehow. Your browser will do all the work for you. You don't even need Skype uh, account or anything like that. Just you really need the group Skype link so that you can join us week after week. And as I always mention, the easy easiest way to get that, go to my website at tatesaytorah.com, um, scroll to the very bottom of the page where that black section where it says weekly parashar archives, and look for the little link that looks like an envelope you can see on my screen right now, hang on, let me go like that, um, where it says email button, you can see on the uh, flashing on the screen right now in red uh, with a little arrow, that's my email, click that, send me an email, Tell me, hey, Ariel, I'd like to join the live internet studies. I'll be sure to, to, uh, to connect you to us uh, so you can join us during the studies. And while you're down there, as I always mention, um, I'm in a position where I could use uh, uh, the assistance from outsiders, from 
from friends, from family members, from well-wishers uh, to keep me um, uh, afloat <laughs> while we're in this difficult time as I'm uh, currently looking for employment. So if God is blessing you to be a blessing to others, then I would be delighted if you would bless me. And that's how you can do it right there. Click on the little donate button and follow the instructions from there. Okay. Be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh my, this is the new format for the new year. And so what we're doing is we're putting the studies right up front at the beginning of the video and the beginning of the study. And uh, this way we'll get through that particular content first. And at the very end, after we've gone through the two studies, we'll um, read the liturgy and then we will watch the video and then we'll close in prayer. So uh, Romans 14 Unplugged. This is a study that is available on my website at tatesaytor.com, and we're working our way down through um, some of the topics here. We're currently in this uh, bullet point right here, uh, which covers Romans 14, verses 10 to 13, who is the brother? And as I mentioned um, in weeks uh, gone by, this is related to the um, topic that the bullet point at the very top of the list, who are the weak in faith? And let me just bring up a little chart and bring up to speed. Um, well, actually, you know what? Um, do I want to read the verses uh, 10 through 13? Yeah, I think I will read just those verses real quick so you can understand what, what we're looking at. Um, we'll read this again in liturgy. Uh, but uh, in Romans 14, Paul says to them, starting in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord in verse 19, every knee will shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God in verse 12. And then in verse 13, Paul says, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And we're talking about who is this brother? Remember in verse 1, Paul um, admonished them, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The weak in faith is related, the identity of the person or the people who are weak in faith, in my opinion, is related to the people who are the brothers. And so let me just bring up a chart. You've seen this chart before in my studies. Um, essentially, if we ask the question, who are the weak in faith, which is related to this idea of who are the brothers? According to the traditional Christian sentiments, the weak are Christians whose weakness is directly connected to their belief in Jesus plus a continued preference for keeping Torah. So the whole body of instructions from this perspective is written to Christians. It's written by a Christian who's Paul to Christians, both Jew and Gentile in that day. And we've got strong Christians who believe that they don't have to keep the law of Moses anymore. They believe in Jesus, but their uh, relationship to the law of Moses or Torah or anything like that, there's no a, a relationship. There's no dependency. There's no um, compulsion. There's no uh, preference for keeping food laws, Sabbath laws, uh, festivals, or anything like that. Thus, they're they're understood by most theologians today to be strong, and their strength is that they are free from the law. Not really. I don't really hear this explanation that they're strong because they believe in Jesus. It's rather their strength is directly related to their freedom from the law. And thus, by comparison, the opposite must be true. Those who are weak, those Christians who are weak, they are Christians, but for whatever reason, whether they've been brought up to believe that they should be keeping the law, like Jews in Paul's day, or whether they are Christians who are gravitating towards law-keeping, either way, 
Weakness is defined as a believer, a fellow Christian, a brother Christian who also keeps the Torah of Moses. So that's the traditional Christian sentiment when it comes to looking at this particular passage. However, if we continue to study through the passage and allow history to um, fuel our research and to drive our interpretation, and thus our later uh, um, implementation, uh, so interpretation leads to, to how we put it into practice, then we'll find that there are some alternate ways of viewing who are the weak in faith and who are the brothers. And so I'm going with that view. The alternate perspective in Mark Nanos is uh, a, a Jewish historian. He's not a believer, as far as I understand. He's not a messy. He's not vocalized his or expressed his faith in Jesus, as far as I can tell. Um, but he's a Jewish historian who writes with a powerful insight to uh, the, the, the 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 Christian scriptures. You know, the Bible that we hold. And his perspective, as you can see on my page here, is that the weak, I'm, I'm paraphrasing all of this, we're going to develop, we, we have been and will continue to develop the way this works itself out in this study, um, but I'm giving you kind of like the bullet point, the, the quick, the flash, the, 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 the flash card version, the, uh, you know, the, the, the bullets up here up front, the overview, so you can kind of follow along a little better. Also functions as a summary. The weak in faith, according to Mark Nanos, the weak in faith are non-hostile, non-Christian Jews whose weakness, so to say, is directly connected to their, <clears throat> as of yet, inability to believe in Jesus as Messiah. So they're not weak because they believe in God and believe in Jesus and uh, reject Torah. Their weakness is not directly connected to their relationship to the law of Moses. Instead, uh, Mark Nano says their weakness is recognized by Paul as a faith that has not yet fully been actualized. It's like a germ. It's a seed of faith, meaning it starts with faith in God. It's expressed as loyalty to Torah, Right, just like most religious Jews would express a loyalty to Torah, but they're still in decision mode. They're reading through their scriptures, they're praying, they're trusting that the scriptures are reliable, and they have a faith in a Messiah who will be uh, revealed to Israel, but they haven't yet fully decided that Jesus is this one Messiah yet. And so we could say they're open to this prospect, and where would they find a dialogue? Well, we're going to read about this tonight. They, these unbelieving Jews, these non-Christian Jews, I, I, I've refrained from always calling them unbelieving because that's kind of Christian ling lingo as well. When we say unbelieving, we typically, we Christians typically mean unbelieving as in do not believe in Jesus. And there are places in the New Testament where the context is, is what that means. But overall, it's slightly misleading when we say unbelieving because they do believe in God. It's just that from God's perspective, their faith has not yet been fully brought to maturity. It's not been actualized when it comes to faith in Messiah. Um, it's still more or less in their head. <laughs> from God's perspective, it's not a heart knowledge of him uh, so much as it, need, and, and it needs to be. So we're going to develop this concept. I know for many of you listening to my commentary, this is a tough pill to swallow. You're thinking, there's no way that those that the weak in faith could be unbelieving Jews. I mean, obviously Paul was writing to Christians. Um, obviously the letter was being circulated among uh, church groups. Um, and, and so why would Paul even consider that perspective? Just stick with me for a little bit and consider um, the, 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 um, 
the biblical um, uh, uh, resources, the biblical data that supports the view that I'm trying to uh, put forth and the impact that it's going to have on us as, as church groups today, messianic groups. Am I saying that we can make a one-to-one correlation between non-Christian Jews of Paul's day and non-Christian Jews of today, today's uh, you know rabbinic Jews, Orthodox Jews? I'm not ready to make that um, correlation just yet one-to-one. For instance, in Paul's day, um, the the faith community that we're going to look at here in a moment was was different um, in so many ways than the what we call the faith community today. Um, the, the 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 church and the synagogue are on on different sides of the street today, theologically, socially. Um, uh, I mean, there's just so many differences between today's Judaisms and today's Christianities. But in Paul's day, there was less. There were less differences between those two groups, what we would call the Judaisms and the Christianities. Um, in many ways, they were, they, were, they were still joined together, uh, subgroups of one another, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So we're going to work this out. So let's turn now to um, uh, Tim Haig, uh, who put together a resource, a book known as The Letter Writer. I think I'll flash a little picture of that on the screen and a way for you to see where you can get this from his website at uh, torresource.com. It's available for purchase. You can also uh, purchase an um, electronic version of it, which I'm using right now. I've got the hard copy sitting on my bookshelf. But let's take a look at uh, chapter 3. He has a chapter where he talks about Paul's faith community. And um, we looked at this uh Last week or two weeks ago, we'll probably finish looking at this section. We're only reading like a short page out of this book. Um, you can see on my screen, and I've got this um, uh, a paragraph highlighted, and the question is, if Paul did not go to church as we know it today, what did his faith community look like? What activities characterized the body of believers of which Paul was a member? That was the question that we posed that Tim Haig is bringing to us. And as we go backwards in time using history to um, uh, be our guide, as we read through our Bible, then we can begin to see that the position that Mark Nanos is championing about how that Paul was actually more inter- interconnected to uh, unbelieving Jews uh, than we would give him credit for today, and that his letter could entirely have been um, uh, within reading from some people in synagogue, uh, 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 unbelieving synagogue perspectives. Um, let's just look at that, all right? I don't want to get ahead of myself. So uh, Tim Haig, talked. he's going to talk about, I think, three reasons why um, we need to rethink the way we view Paul when it comes to who was Paul connected to by way of faith community, and who would the um, communities have been comprised of, and how could they have been interacting with his letters and things like that? What was going on in the mind of Paul when he writes his letters? Who does he expect is going to be reading it? Um, and things like that. So we looked at this again either last week or the week prior to that. Um, the first reason is that Paul didn't consider the synagogue his opponent. So we don't have to look at that again. And we uh, Tim Haig talked about that. We read down through that. And... Um, now we're st- ready to start uh, reading this uh, second reason read right here. Give me a second. I don't want to highlight that just yet. There we go. Um, so um, the the second reason uh, that Tim Haig says why we need to rethink the way we um, uh, view Paul's community and why it's important. Secondly, the synagogue of Paul's day consisted of both Jew and Gentile, since it was the only place of worship along with the temple in Jerusalem of the one true God, right? These are things that we have to stop and remind ourselves again as 21st century Christians, because when we too often, 
and I'm guilty of this myself. So don't 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 think I'm picking on everyone else out there. Like I've got all the answers, and you guys are just um, just idiots. That's not the way I'm I'm spin, trying to spin my teaching. I also have to constantly remind myself when I'm reading through my Bible of when I'm reading through passages, especially through Paul's writings, this is entirely important, is that um, what was the social community like in Paul's day? Who would have been receiving his letters? Who would have been reading them? How would they have been impacted? And how would have they have been how would they have been implementing his instructions? Um, the expected presence of Gentiles in the synagogue underlies the statement of James at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that those Gentiles who had come to faith in Yeshua listen to this, would hear the teaching of Moses every Sabbath in the synagogue, Acts 15.21. How could they hear the teaching of Moses if they weren't in contact with synagogue groups of their day? Again, unlike today, contrastingly, most 21st century Christians are most definitely not going to be hearing Moses taught every Sabbath day in the synagogue. There's just too many problems with that statement. Number one, most of church and Christianity doesn't have any interest in following after the teaching of Moses anyway. We've inherited a tradition where the law of Moses has been set aside and the law of Christ has been elevated. That's one problem that prevents us from uh, imitating what the Acts 15 Christians would, Gentiles would have been doing. Number two, we have different worship days. Most of Christianity has chosen to embrace Sunday as our worship day instead of Seventh-day Sabbath. And then number three, most 21st century Christians are not attending synagogue. We're attending our other places of worship, churches or home groups, Bible studies, um, whatnot. So it's not the synagogue that is our primary place of worship. So that's going to separate first century Gentile Christians from 21st century Christians when it comes to the way we understand these passages right away. Tim Hay continues, moreover, Luke in the book of um in the book of Acts, regularly links the Gentiles with the synagogue. You have to remember that when you're reading through Paul's writings, that the book of Acts is this uh, historical um, narrative that describes Paul going from place to place to place on his missionary journeys, moving in and amongst various uh, believing communities that he's either founding or that he's visiting or that he's writing to in advance, like the book of Rome, uh, the book of Romans and things like that, the letter to Romans. And so what you want to do is remind yourself that the, um, the, the, the events that took place in the book of Acts overlap with the time frames of the Pauline, Pauline, uh, the Pauline epistles. In other words, you read through Romans and you have to remember that that he's writing this letter to the Romans, to the people in Rome, but he is still interacting with people in the synagogues if you read through the book of Acts. So um, let's look at this for a second. Let's jump through the book of Acts and look at a few passages. Uh, this first passage out of Acts 13, 43. Uh, now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, notice they're in the synagogue or in a synagogue. And when we say synagogue, you also have to remember that the Greek word synagogue is not always a, a reference to 
so much a place as it's a reference to a group of people who are just simply gathered together for a common purpose, such as to study Torah or fellowship or, or pray or something to that effect. So don't think in your mind that it's always just a place, like a building. The synagogue doesn't always refer to the building, although it can refer to a building and things like that. But when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes, that's the Gentiles there who were um um, interested in the God of Israel, the people of Israel, the scriptures of Israel, the promises of Israel, the covenants of Israel, but they had not undergone, or in this case, um, some of them had undergone conversion, but some of them had not, God-fearing proselytes, right? I think both of them are in view there. They followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The only reason for bringing this uh, passage up, again, is that we're seeing that uh, non-Jews, i.e. either Gentile God-fearers who had not undergone conversion, thus their their legal status among the Jewish community was still Gentile, or proselytes who had undergone conversion, ritual conversion, uh, rabbinic conversion from their ethnic status or social status of being a, considered as a Gentile into this social status, religious uh, status, ethnic status, whatever you want to call it, of being Jewish, counted among uh, the, the, the Jewish, uh, the Jews in the uh, communities. So either way you looked at it, they started out as Gentiles. That's the point of bringing up this passage. Look, let's look at the next one, Acts 14.1. And it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed both of Jews and Greeks. When it says Greeks there, it's trying to, to let you know that um, these were non-Jewish uh, socially recognized or ethnically recognized um, people that were nevertheless coming together in a synagogue. So the point in bringing up these passages Tim Haig is doing is simply to, to demonstrate that uh, Gentiles were present in the synagogue settings of the first century more so often than today we would might see them. Indeed, if you as a Christian wander into your average synagogue today, if the 21st century, modern times, more than likely, more than likely, you're going to encounter a majority of people who identify as Jews. Whether or not they were born Jewish or converted to Judaism is a moot point, because from a religious perspective, conversion turns you into a Jew just the same as if you were born Jewish. So it's not a point that needs to be brought up. The point that does need to be brought up is that they're identifying as Jews. Yet you, your average Gentile Christian who is not identifying as Jewish are going to feel like the outsider, not just theologically because of the of what they believe in, but just from the the social religious perspective when when it comes to identifying with this particular religious group from an ethnic perspective, from a heritage perspective, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's keep reading. Acts seventeen seventeen. Tim Haig brings up this verse. Um, so he was speaking of Paul. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. This gives us the background behind understanding his letters, particularly the letter to the book of Rome, to the book to the congregation at Rome. Um, could he be writing to um, congregations at Rome who would still be in a place where they could interact with the synagogues? Had the break taken place yet? I think it hadn't taken place yet. Yes, there was tension between those who professed faith in Jesus and those who didn't. And, and no more, nowhere else was this more kind of uh, heated than in the synagogue uh, environment. Yes, that's true. But the point is, um, there wasn't 
yet there wasn't yet this hard and fast break between the church, quote unquote, and the synagogue, quote unquote, where we had completely separate places of worship, completely separate ideologies, theologies, people groups, scriptures, etc., etc., etc. That's the point I'm trying to bring up. The second the, and the last reference that Tim Haig brings up in his book here is from Acts 18:4. Speaking of Paul again, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So it's very natural for Paul to have uh, anticipated meeting Jewish people who didn't have faith in Jesus and Gentiles who were uh, attracted to the religion of Israel, the culture of Israel, the scriptures of Israel, etc., etc., and yet they were not believers in Jesus either. So again, that's the setting that we're trying to describe that will influence the questions that we're asking, who were the weak in faith in Paul's letter, and who are the brothers? I submit, again, like uh, Mark Danos, and he's not the only one who has this pr- perspective. This is held by many other uh, Christian authors as well. Uh, he's just one of the more vocal uh, proponents of this perspective, that the weak in faith are actually some of these um, fellow Jews that Paul would have recognized had a faith in God. And let me look at that chart again. They had a faith in God and a loyalty to Torah, but they didn't profess faith in Jesus, and yet they were not hostile to the prospect. Thus, they could be reached. Look, look, look Paul's trying to persuade them. He's trying to persuade them, especially the Greeks as well. But he's trying to persuade these Jews that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been reading about. They're already Messianic hopeful. Therefore, they're in a position where the Holy Spirit can bring them into the light if they would be in a place where they can continue to be open to that. And so Paul is banking on that. His prayer is that Israel would receive their Messiah, right? Go back and read Romans uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11 all over again. He doesn't want to turn away from Israel. He doesn't want to give up on the synagogue just yet. He, he, his heart's desire is that, that they would be brought into this relationship with Yeshua. So let's keep reading Tim Haig. We're going to finish this tonight, by the way. Uh, Tim Haig continues, we likewise find Cornelius, right? Remember him, Acts chapter 10, to be vitally connected to the Jewish community himself, a man of prayer and a Gentile worshiper of God. Cornelius is a, is a, is a great character to highlight. Cornelius was not a Christian when we first uh, encounter him in Acts chapter 10. Wouldn't you agree? He's not a Christian, and he's not a Jew either. What is he? The Bible calls him a God-fearer. This is a technical term that the Jewish people had given to Gentiles who were abandoning paganism and yet had not embraced uh, uh, Jewish proselytism. Right? They hadn't gone the full uh, uh, swing and become Jewish proselytes uh, for whatever reasons. They had their per- these Gentile God-fearers had their reasons, like Cornelius. But nevertheless, from a theological perspective, they were interested in the God of Israel, and they were interested in um, the laws of Israel, right? the scriptures of Israel and his um, commandments and things like that. So for this reason, they were um, they they were spoken of as very positively in the Jewish communities. So let's keep reading. So uh, uh, Cornelius is this God fearer, Acts chapter ten, one and two. In a similar manner, a centurion whose daughter Yeshua heals is noted as giving the finances for the buildings of a synagogue structure in Capernaum. Read Luke seven one through five. Haig remarks, it is no wonder then that as Paul attended the synagogue in whatever city he may have been, he would also have found a natural connection to the Gentile community there. The synagogue was the place God-fearing Gentiles would be worshiping. 
Let me read that again. The synagogue was the place that God-fearing Gentiles would be worshiping. Paul wasn't going around looking for First Baptist churches or Catholic cathedrals or, or, or Lutheran places of worship or Methodist houses or anything like that. He wasn't looking for those places that he could plug in. They didn't exist. He would naturally go to the synagogues where the Gentile God-fears would have been gathering, and then he also would have made use of the home groups that were springing up here and there of brothers who could not attend synagogue, or maybe there wasn't one available to them or chose not to, who had already decided to gather together in their home places of home worship. We already know there were these types of fellowships that were um, cropping up here and there as a result of the gospel spreading around the world at the time, and at least in Paul's day, in Paul's part of the world. And so he's going to visit those places as well. But we, we sometimes discount the idea that he's going to keep going to the synagogues. We, in our mind, we read through the books that he wrote, the letters that he wrote, and we start to think, oh, of course, he's just writing these letters to those small church groups or the, the, the home churches. He's not really writing to the synagogues. He doesn't care about them anymore. He's not connected to those Jews or Gentiles who are worshiping God anymore. Wrong. Wrong. He is still connected to them. That he still considers them part of his faith community, albeit from a broader perspective. Let me keep reading uh, Tim Hag here. The synagogue was the place of God-fearing Gentiles would be worshiping. That's where they would be worshiping. And surely these Gentiles who worship Israel's God would be his best introduction to the larger Gentile population in the city. Remember, from a from a um, evangelical perspective, uh, Paul's going to reach out to unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, and the synagogue was the perfect place to reach both of those social groups with the gospel. Not that he would really expect that his letters would would have any traction there and would even be authoritative. I understand that. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Paul's writing his letter to Romans thinking, they're going to read my letter in the synagogue and they're just going to automatically be that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, <laughs> no, I, I, he probably didn't have that uh, expectation in mind. However, he surely does expect that the influence that his teachings are uh, uh, represent in any given place that he's writing letters and visiting and, and teaching and things like that is going to, his influence is going to be felt not just at those small church home group levels, but is also going to be felt at the synagogue level from an evangelical perspective. Thus, when Paul thinks of weak in faith, it's not entirely out of the question to picture that he perhaps had Jews and Gentiles who were God-fearing or worshiping God, but hadn't yet uh, made a commitment that Jesus is the Messiah. Their faith is present, but it hasn't come to the fullness yet. Let's keep reading Tim Haig. Third, and we'll finish with this tonight, Tim Haig mentions these reasons why we need to re-evaluate the way we interpret Paul and the way we just automatically assume that Paul was this Christian who made a break from Judaism and is writing to Christians and doesn't have any unbelieving Jews or unbelieving Gentiles who would have been attending synagogue in mind. Why do we need to rethink that perspective? Thirdly, those notices in the Gospels and Acts in which the synagogue is represented as standing against Yeshua and his followers must be understood as an in-house struggle, not a contest between two opposing entities. It was not church versus synagogue so much in Paul's day as it was believing Jews versus unbelieving Jews or Messianic Jews versus Messianic uh, or un uh, uh, traditional Judaism, things like that. But the point being is that it was still within the, the scope of a synagogue discussion.
Too often, Tim Hague remarks, too often Yeshua and his followers are viewed as the church that opposes the unbelieving synagogue. But that's not entirely the case. When Paul tells us that five times, listen to this, this is a very powerful line of reasoning. When Paul tells us that five times he received 39 lashes, we understand this to be the discipline of the synagogue. I got to stop and let that sink in. Paul tells us, there's a footnote, number 145, that points us to um, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 24, which you can go back and read that on your own. Paul says that he received punishment five times. The, the, the punishment that, according to the Torah, should be 40 lashes, but the rabbis reduced it to one. You can go back and read about all that in rabbinic writings and things like that, why they reduced it to, one, to 39. So they called it the 40 minus one, meaning it, it resulted in 39 lashes. But it was discipline for some sort of uh, um, what would be considered by a synagogue level, the, na- the you know the unbelieving synagogue, I might add, would be considered something worthy of being punished. And Paul, think about it. If he's a Christian who made a break from Judaism, shouldn't he have said to the synagogue, hey, I know you guys disagree with me about this, and hey, I know you want to punish me. You want to give me the lashes, right? But hey, I don't belong to you anymore. You're not my faith community anymore. I don't identify with you anymore. I'm a Messianic Jew. You have no legal right to punish me. I'm not a, me- a believer of your community. I'm just going to go over to the churches that I founded and that I've established and I'm writing to, and I'll have my theology over there, where they're not going to punish me for the things that I'm teaching. Is that what Paul said? That isn't what he said. Why would Paul submit to the punishment from the synagogue as a believer if he didn't still consider himself underneath their authority in some capacity. I'm not saying in all capacities. Don't misunderstand me and don't put words in my mouth. Please, I'm actually just trying to get us to to consider that Paul still considered the the greater synagogue community to be an authoritative um, uh, 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 authoritative, uh, ingredient, I'm, trying, I'm lost for words here, um, of his um, religious life, not in all facets, but at least in some respects, right? I'm sure if Paul would have, I'll close with the, by saying this, I'm sure if Paul would have wandered into a pagan temple of his day, right, the you know, temple of Diana, and started preaching against paganism, if they would have said to him, you know, if the high priestess of Diana would have said to him, hey, you, Paul, Mr. Christian, Mr. Messianic Jew, whatever you want to call yourself, if you don't stop preaching against our pagan religion, against our, our belief in, in, in uh, you know, the goddess Diana or whatever, if you don't stop preaching against it, we're, gonna, we're going to punish you with a punishment called the 12 lashes, right? Whatever, I'm just making something up. Do you think Paul would have said, okay, I submit to your punishment, but please let me consider being a part of your community, even though I disagree with your theology of who Diana is, but I still consider myself a part of your community, so I submit to your punishment of your of your 12 lashes or whatever, just so that I can show that I'm still a part of your community. <laughs> you think Paul would have done that? Absolutely not. You know, he's not going to submit to their authority. Why? Because he's not a part of their community. All right, so understand what message this sends when Paul submits to them, not just once. But five times, I mean, five times, give me a break. Let's keep reading. Um, Hig uh, continues to, to challenge us with these statements. Um, one could understand why he had no choice but to endure the punishment the first time, right? 
And me too. But why would he have returned to the authority of the synagogue repeatedly even after receiving additional punishment? I mean, why go back? The only conceivable answer, listen to this logic, is that Paul considered the synagogue to be the divinely ordained institution for God's people. Even though they didn't believe in Jesus just yet. Even though they didn't have a faith in Messiah. Remember those weak in faith that Nanos described? They haven't yet made this decision that Jesus is Messiah. But does this mean they're not still God's elect like Paul's going to write about in the latter half of Romans chapter 11? Does this mean that God has given up on them? That the promises don't still belong to them? That they're not still covenantally bound to believe in God and loyalty to his Torah? Does this believe that that um, Messianic Jews should just also consider these, that these unbelieving, again I'm using unbelieving in air quotes, or non-Christian Jews should just be part of a, a wholly different other community? No. Haig goes on to say, therefore, even though he, Paul, certainly had been wrongly accused, right? He knew he was. He knew that the things he was saying um, were right, and yet they were wrong. And yet, what does Tim Haig say? He bore the prescribed punishment and remained in the synagogue and under the authority of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. That's just outstanding to me, that Paul would submit, even though the Sanhedrin was in many ways a godless institution, godless in the sense that they were secular, meaning, um, well, maybe though, maybe I should backtrack. I shouldn't use that phrase, godless and secular. I simply want to say that they were, from as far as we could understand, they were not a messianic organization, as far as we can tell. So they were God-fearing to the degree that they, that, that, that they expressed a faith in God, um, but I don't believe they expressed a faith in Messiah, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, Haig goes on to say, Paul did so out of the conviction that the synagogue represented the true faith community of which he was a member. It represented the primary visible expression of God's people. That's really the point that we're trying to bring up. And then he concludes, and I'll, I'll conclude with this particular, um, uh, these two picked, uh, paragraphs here. Oops, scroll down too far. There we go. The division that occurred in the sec. oops. Did I want to read there? Yeah, yeah, that is where I want to read. Okay. Uh, Hegg says, The division that occurred in the 2nd century CE, yielding the synagogue on the one hand and the emergent church on the other hand, was not a reality in Paul's day. That's really just history. That's the bottom line, people. Reading through the book of Romans, which um, was written in the early, so probably in the, the maybe the early to mid-60s of the 1st century, so 63 to 65, somewhere around there. In Paul's day, the temple was still standing, and in Paul's day, there was no break, a hard break, between church and synagogue, right? That, that hadn't taken place yet. So this is not to diminish the differences that may have existed between the followers of Yeshua and the synagogue communities of which they were members, right? Don't get that out of your head. You must understand that what Paul and the other believing Jews and Gentiles who were laying hold of faith in Messiah, surely that was radical in his day, but it was not to the point that it had broken the split the faith community um, completely apart yet. But in comparison with the pagan world in which the first century Judaism existed, the followers of Yeshua had much more in common with the wider Jewish community than they had differences. That's the point I'm trying to bring up as well. Until well after the destruction of the temple, the disciples of Yeshua could never have seen themselves as separate from the community represented by the various Judaisms of their day. There were only two choices, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Paganism or Judaism. Those were the two choices. The third choice, called Christianity, didn't exist until later. Thus, the synagogue-slash-temple, with all of its infighting, was still the place where God's people met, worshipped, prayed together, and lived out their life of faith. 
And I think I'll stop here and read this final paragraph next week because it's like a, like a conclusion. We'll also next week turn to Mark Nanos' book, the um, that you can see on my screen right now. I'm flashing in post production of um, the mystery of Rome, uh, the mystery of Romans, and we'll pull uh, some excerpts from there, starting with this uh, chapter. Uh, this paragraph entitled The Weak Were Definitely Jews, But Were They Christians? So we're coming full circle on this idea of who were the weak in faith and are the brothers only brother Christians or could perhaps main brother include brother covenant members, brother um, monotheistic, uh, God-fearing Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who hadn't yet um, espoused faith in Jesus, but were nevertheless still part of the faith community that we uh, Christian Jews and Gentiles identify with on a larger level. That's the challenge that we're going to be continue to look at in the study in Romans chapter 14. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We'll take just a few moments uh, to begin to look through this chart that CARM has supplied for us in my commentary that I have available on my website at tatesatora.com. And um, we're going to work, we're working our way through this uh, chart of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can see at the top here of the chart, and it's created a column where we've got passages that link. Um, attributes and um, actions uh, that God, <clears throat> the being, um, is known for in the Bible, uh, labels, titles, um, things that you would encounter as you're reading through the narratives, and you have to come to this uh, a conclusion. Am I reading about one God, yet three persons, or am I reading about one God who is a single, who has a singular identity that can't be shared uh, or expressed in the three persons, right? That's what we're trying to ascertain as we look through this. The best way to to uh, interact with a chart such as this, this isn't the only chart, but charts that you're going to find on the internet. They're, these are all over the place. You know, pastors put these together and things like that. Theologians, apologet apologetics, apologicians, apologicians. What do you call people who are apologetic apologeticist? <laughs> Apologists. There we go. I think that's the word. Apologists, such as myself. Um, you're going to find that the best way to interact with charts such as these are to keep the idea that the whole Bible is in view, rather than you're avoiding this idea of cherry picking and singling out one verse and using that as a proof text over and against all other verses. <clears throat> Instead, I apologize for keep clearing my throat here. I've got a frog in my throat, and frogs aren't even kosher. Um, the the best way to interact with with a chart such as this is to, to make sure that you have an overview of the Bible when you're reading this. So we've already looked at uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit called God. We already looked at Father, Son, Holy Spirit called Creator. Tonight we're going to be discussing Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, resurrects. Right? Uh, who resurrected Yeshua? Who exactly did? So let's jump right into it without further ado. First passage is First uh, Thessalonians one ten, and that's where the Father resurrects Yeshua. When it comes to the Son, we're going to look at John 2.19 as well as John 10.17 where Yeshua himself says that he will resurrect himself or raise himself up. This is the terminology he's going to use. And then when we get to the passage about the Holy Spirit, we're going to find that's the Spirit of God or the Spirit of He who raised Yeshua from the dead, which is God, which as we learned already is the Holy Spirit, which is God's Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, right? They, there's kind of an overlap there where some might say, well, that's just another passage talking about God himself raising. But if it's just God and not the Spirit, why even bring up the word Spirit at all? So we'll look at that passage. Those are the, those are the references that we're going to be working our way through tonight, just those. So let's look at them. 
First passage, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. But let me back up and read verse 9 so we can see the context. Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us of the concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul is just heaping the praises of the Gentiles who he's writing to, predominantly in his letters, right? Um, who are turning to God, the, the community, the faith communities, which of course, remember what we learned in Romans 14, I believe does include unbelieving Jews who are also turning to faith in Messiah. But notice he says that the last, the last thing, he, twice in this verse, he says, you turn to God from idols it's to serve the living and true and living God. So God, or Theos, or Theon, or Theo, or something to that effect, whatever Greek, is used twice in this passage. That being the subject, right, the context, pushes us right into verse 10, and Paul says, and to wait for his, right, who's the his? The his referring to God, his son from heaven, whom he, who's the he? God raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So from a context perspective, it is unquestionable that Paul is talking about God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. That's what Paul says in verse 10, whom he raised from the dead. Who's the he? God. God, as determined by the context in, very, in the previous verse. That's right, read verse 9 with verse 10. We can even look at the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. And of course, they're going to champion this idea as monotheists, as as Unitarians, as Arians who believe that Jesus is not very God. They're going to champion this idea that God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, what they say in their version is, for they themselves keep reporting about our first contact with you and how you turn to God from your idols to slay for a living and true God and to wait, verse 10, for his son from the heavens, whom he raised from the dead, namely Jesus. So notice their translation, Jehovah's Witnesses, JW.org, is going to be nearly identical to any other standard Christian version that speaks of God raising Jesus from the dead. Because that's the position that Jehovah's Witness is going to take, the exclusive, the exclusive position that Jesus was raised by God. However, let's keep reading. Look at John 2, starting in verse 19. But to catch the context, let's read 18, 19, and 20, and um, 21. John writes, So the Jews said to him, speaking to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? And then verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So, from context, we have this discussion between Yeshua and some of the religious Jews of his day, or maybe not even religious, but the point being, Yeshua, speaking of his body, says that I will raise it up. Now, let's look at the Jehovah's Witnesses' perspective and see what they have to say. If Yeshua says that he will raise it up, this sounds unmistakably like Yeshua is going to be the one who's responsible for resurrection. Contrary to what Paul taught that God raised him, how do um, cults such as the Jehovah's Witness uh, get around this passages like this? Well, let's turn to their version and read it. Starting again at verse 18 and reading verse 18, 19, 20, and 21. They have to say, therefore, in response, the Jews said to him, what sign can you show us since you are doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus replied to them, tear down this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. 
Wow, sounds like the same rendering, right? They didn't change anything. But let's keep reading. Wait a minute. Don't jump too quick. Verse 20, the Jews then said, this temple was built in 46 years and you'll raise it up in three days. Verse 21, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Now, at a surface level reading, it sounds like they're saying the exact same thing that your standard Christian version was saying. Thus, you would think that they must also believe that Jesus raised himself as opposed to God raising himself, right? How do they get out of this? How do they wiggle out of this one? Well, let's look at their commentary notes on the side here that I've got pulled up from this uh, website, and we'll see how they wiggle out of it. Their footnote to John 2.19 reads this way. Let me uh, read from this section over on the right side of their screen. It says, tear down this temple, and in three days, let me do this, tear down this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. All right, here's what they have to say. Only John records these words spoken by Jesus. The Jews thought that he was speaking of the temple at Herod. At Jesus' trial, the prosers quoted and distorted his words. They have some scriptures. As shown at John 2.21, Jesus was using figurative speech. I agree with what they're saying so far. He was comparing his anticipated death and resurrection to the demolition and reconstruction of the temple. Listen to what they say next. You ready for it? Here's how they get out of it. Although Jesus said, I will raise it up, the scriptures clearly show that it was God who resurrected him. And then they give some scriptures. And that's it. They stop. So they disagree with, even though Jesus said, I will raise it up, they say it was God who resurrected him. Which makes Yeshua's words somewhat nonsense. See what I'm saying? In my opinion, they really cheapen the, 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 what Yeshua is trying to explain here. The words of the Master get downplayed as if to say, well, maybe Yeshua wasn't quite understanding <laughs> that, that, um, that uh, uh, God is going to be raising him. It's actually God who resurrected him, even though Jesus says, I will raise it up. Either Yeshua was mistaken or uh, something else. And I'm just not I'm not convinced that that's what's going on. In fact, I disagree strongly, and I'm disappointed in, in uh, their little uh, uh, commentary off to the side that would, would kind of reduce what Messiah said as to being true. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Um, later on, they're going to uh, – there's a passage uh, in John um, uh, uh, 10 that we're going to look at here. In fact, um, let's just jump over to it right now. In John 10, 13, I'm sorry, John 10, John 10, 17, John continues to write about Yeshua. Same Messiah, and it's the same um, structure of Jewish people, community, uh, religious Jews that he's interacting with. Whether it's the exact same people, I don't know, but um, it's within the same social framework of the um, uh, religious Jews of, Paul, of, of John's day. Look at this, John 10, 17. Yeshua says, for this reason, the Father loves me because, watch this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, recall what John said about Yeshua in John 2.19. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. I will do it. Does Yeshua say that God, my Father, is going to do it? He doesn't say that. And yet the Jehovah's Witnesses want us to believe that even though Jesus said, I will raise it up, it's actually God who actually is doing it. And so what we have in John 10, 17, when Yeshua says, I may take it up again, here's how the Jehovah's Witnesses at this time 
and, and I'm really, I just have to say it. I think they twist the scriptures to their theology. Listen to what they say in their version of John 10, 17. You ready for it? Look at this. This is why the Father loves me, because I surrender my life so that I may receive it again. Look at verse 17 one more time. I surrender my life so that I may receive it again. Is that what John said in, in your standard Christian version? Look at the Christian version again. I lay down my life. They say surrender. I'm fine with that part. But it's the last clause. In your most Christian version, it says that I may take it up again. But in your Jehovah's Witness version, it says so that I may receive it again. In fact, verse 18 continues. Um, in your standard Christian version, it says, No one takes it from me, speaking about his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This, excuse me, this charge I've received from my Father. I have authority, and this charge I've received from my Father. Okay, now I think I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to slip in the where Yeshua says, This charge I've received from my Father. They're saying, Okay, God is the one who empowers me. My Father is the one who empowers me to do this. But we can't escape the fact that Yeshua says, I'm the one who does these things. But. Let's see what they have to say in their version. Verse 18 says, No man takes it away from me, but I surrender it of my own initiative. I have authority to surrender it, and I have authority to receive it again. To receive it again? Not to do it of my own? So what's the point I'm trying to bring up? Let's look at the um, uh, a little bit of the Greek here. Um, in John... Uh, 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 10, 17, sorry, wrong passage. Uh, he says, um, because of because in the, in the Greek, he says, I might take it. I'm, I just want to show you his last few words. Uh, I might take it. Labo autain. This verb labo is a, uh, as I hover over it, is an aorist subjunctive active first person singular. The point I'm trying to make is that it's an active verse, verb. It's not a passive verb. It's not something being done to him by someone else. It's something that he does himself, right? I might take it again. Indeed, in verse 18, we have the similar construction. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down. Uh, same thing again. The verb is in the active here where lay it down, right? To thame, I lay it down. Um, I lay it down and I have authority to take it again. Again, uh, we look at the same Greek word, uh, labain. Uh, this verb is in the active sense. So these are um, uh, uh, ways for us to, to interact with this idea that I believe Yeshua is expressing quite emphatically that he is the one who is doing this. Uh, yes, God empowered him. But it's not the same as saying that he didn't do it himself. He is very God who is empowered because he's very God to do this thing himself. That's the point I'm trying to say. And yeah, we could say that some of the verbs um, uh, might express active or passive. I believe that uh, uh, when the Jehovah's Witnesses say that, um, like for instance in verse 17, so that I may receive it again. Uh, I'm sorry, yes, that I may receive it again. I think there's too strongly... Um, translating the verse as if it's in a passive, as if Yeshua is simply on the passive receiving end of 
receiving his life back, like the way they say it. I surrender my life. Okay, I did that actively, but so that I may, what, receive it again? No, that's not really, I believe, what Yeshua is trying to convey. He says, so that I may take it up again. Not that I may receive it again, right? I think they've they've done a disservice uh, in here in uh, trying to get us to understand that that Yeshua doesn't have the power to do it in and of himself by himself. But uh, let's keep reading through some of these. Uh, we have one more passage to look at: Romans eight eleven. This is Paul's great spirit passage. He uses the word spirit more often than not, and we're going to f- close with this particular passage in Romans eight verse eleven. Um, Paul talks about the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead. So let's just read it. But I want to start back in verse 9, so 9, 10, 11. He says, You, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So right away, the subject is the Spirit of God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We're not talking about this tonight, but I like the fact that Paul immediately overlays the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ on top of one another. He uses this um, uh, um, uh, combination of these two phrases to help us understand, I believe, a kind of an inside peek uh, into his understanding of, of the nature of God, how that it's the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And in fact, he says in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, right? First, remember in verse 9, he said, if God is in you, Right, God, the Spirit of God, dwells in you. And in fact, it's the Spirit of God, not necessarily God dwelling in you, but he says the Spirit of God. Uh, But if Christ is in you, right, the Spirit of Christ, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Once again, Spirit of God dwelling in you, but Christ is in you. So see how he's overlapping those? But then in verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So he jumps back down into Spirit of God. So it's Spirit of God dwelling in you, Spirit of Christ, Christ dwelling in you, right? Christ is in you. And then back to Spirit of God dwelling in you. I like how Paul does it. And notice in the last verse, verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit is life, and it is the uh, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give you life. Well, who is he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead who gives life? It's the spirit whose life. It's the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead who dwells in you. Who is this spirit of him who dwells? It is the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of God. So we could say it's the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And it is this Holy Spirit who dwells in you, this same Holy Spirit, which is life, this same Holy Spirit who gives life to your mortal bodies through this Holy Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul understands it's one God, one Spirit, one Holy Spirit, but yet God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus raised himself from the dead, and the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. See what I'm saying? So that's the point of going through a chart such as the one that Karma has put together for us. We're going to find that as we work our way through the scriptures, we find that the language of the scriptures is giving us this view of God, this one being, who's nevertheless being expressed 
and encountered as three persons with different roles. Remember last week we talked about ontological trinity versus economic trinity. Ontological trinity talks about the nature of God. And economic trinity speaks of the functions and roles that God plays within um, the persons of God. And so we're going to see this demonstrated for us as we work our way through the different scripture passages that we uh, have uh, available for us. Okay, And that'll do it for this particular study on exploring the Shema. Let's close with our liturgy and the video and closing prayer. And I won't wax long. I was going to read lots of passages out of, um, I shouldn't say lots. Um, I'll just read, um, I think I'll just read one passage this time. And next week I'll read uh, more of this. But uh, let's just look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 1. Um, it's interesting that Moshe talks about the Torah as if it's one single unit. He calls it the commandment. Even though it is multiple, is comprised of multiple commandments and statutes and ordinances and precepts and things like that. So let's just look at this for our liturgy. Deuteronomy 6 verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. We'll talk about this next week, about how this commandment is designed to bring us safety and bless us as we move into the land, and um, God is enjoining upon us uh, our obedience to all of this commandment or these commandments. We'll look at that um, next week. The Hebrew over on the right side of the page says, V'zot uh, ha-mitzvah ha-hukim That'll be our liturgy from the Hebrew section. For the Greek section, let's turn to Romans uh, 14, and I'll just read one verse. I'll keep the liturgy really, really short tonight. Let's scroll down to uh, verse 10, and we'll just read this one tonight. Next week, we'll read some more. Romans 10, uh, Romans 14, 10 says, uh, Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Do you think Paul could have also meant believing and unbelieving Jews that were brought together in one community setting? And when he says brother, he's trying to get um, believing brothers to also consider not judging the unbelieving brothers who have not yet come to a faith in Messiah, but they, they do express a faith in God and a loyalty to Torah. And thus, that loyalty to Torah and their faith in God is what drives them to behave the way they do, such as keeping special days and fasting the way they do and um, keeping kosher the way they do and things like that. And if they are going to stand before God and one day, just like all of us, and yet at the same time, God is also making them stand, then we cannot judge them. The Greek over on the right side of the page says, Su de ti krineston adelphon su, e kai su ti exuthneston adelphon su. Pantes gar parastesametha to bemati tu theu. That'll be the liturgy for tonight. Let's watch the uh, short little video real quick, and then we'll close in prayer.
Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. A growing number of believers today, myself included, subscribe to keeping the whole of the Torah as an instructional document for those in Messiah. Other Christians say we should only concern ourselves with the Ten Commandments, and still others say we don't even need the Ten. Is there scriptural wisdom that can point us in the right direction? Being Jewish, yet growing up in Christian schools, I've always been taught that the law was much more than the Ten Commandments, although it included the Ten. Interestingly, when questioned about the greatest commandments of the law, Yeshua, Jesus, actually replied that there were two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about those two in a recent video, by the way. Yet, if you look up these two great commandments, neither one of them is found in the Ten. Be sure, the first one is from Deuteronomy 6.5, and the second one is from Leviticus 19.18. One could say that the first four of the ten govern our relationship to God, and the final six govern our relationship to our fellow man. This would make Yeshua's two great commandments a sort of distilled summary of the ten commandments themselves. So, in conclusion, the ten commandments is perhaps the comprehensive summary of law written by the very finger of God, but it is clearly not the whole of the law. The additional commandments of God were, of course, dictated to and written down by Moses. And if we take Yeshua's words and ground them in the context of the Bible as a whole, I firmly believe that we should commit ourselves to all of God's words and God's ways. Amen? Amen. And that'll do it for our study tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you so much for the study. I thank you that we are a community of those who have been called out by your marvelous mercies, by your glorious praises. We have been called into a relationship with you that is expressed fully in the person and work of Messiah Yeshua. He's our Lord and he's our Savior. And we are unashamed of expressing this truth to those around us, to the rest of the world around us explaining uh, in our witness, in the way we live our lives, and in, in the words that we say, in the manner in which we conduct our, our lifestyle, that we are followers after Messiah Yeshua. Let us not be ashamed of this particular gospel. Thank you that you have revealed this truth to us. Continue to raise us up and bless us. Continue to protect us. Help us to remember that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. You've not taken us out of the world, but you protect us from the adversary. You protect us from the evil schemes of men. You fill us with your precious Holy Spirit and give us an anchor of truth, uh, which is grounded in your truth, which is your very words of life. Thank you for raising us up as individuals, as families, as communities, despite all the confusion that is running rampant all around us. Help us to continue to have a blessed hope that you will return one day and that you will raise us up, whether we're living or whether we have died prior. You will raise us up and you will take us to be with yourself. Bless you, Father, as we continue to look uh, with expectancy for your soon re return. We'll give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. 
And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 